After living overseas for more than a decade, I came to appreciate far more who I was, where I come from, and the kinds of remarkable people I encountered at the same time as I was trying to find my way as an expat. In my travels, I've met expats of every description. They are my guests on Expat Enclave, and I'm your host, Paul Miazga. Good uh, day. Welcome to Expat Enclave. Born and raised in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Andreas Toscono Mielenhausen is kind of what you'd expect from Google's head of creative agencies for Russia. He's larger than life, and his energy, ideas, and passion are reflected in all he does. He speaks four languages fluently, and like all creative types, he lives on the edge to a certain extent, judging from his YouTube channel. Andreas, in addition to working for some of Russia's biggest uh, and most high-profile businesses, is an avid motorcycle racer, a uh, fitness enthusiast, and he's even had a small recurring part in a Russian soap opera. But we'll not. Uh, we'll let him talk more about that himself. Andreas, welcome to Expat Enclave. Thanks for the invite, Paul. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Uh, you've worked at small, medium, and large ad agencies throughout your career before going to work for Google. Uh, how have your career goals changed over that time, or have they? Uh, have you finally found your sweet spot at Google? Um, well, I would say I I have found my sweet spot at Google, uh, and that's because my career goals have changed uh, through time. So when I began, uh, I had no idea what a career uh, in advertising looked like. So uh, like you said, I started in a sort of a small agency, um, medium to small agency, and I was uh, still in university. I had no idea what advertising was. I got this um, um, super uh, short temp position. It was supposed to be a month because my father was in marketing. So I ended up there and uh, there was no big computer for an art director. So they said I could be a copywriter and I had no idea what a copywriter did. So my first career goal was to be accepted and to do um, well what a copywriter does. Mm-hmm. So my uh, my temp style went from one month to three months to six months. Then I got I got hired and I ended up staying in this agency for two and a half years. And in that time, my my career started to change. Uh, career goals started to change because I started thinking, okay, I, maybe I need to work for a bigger agency. Maybe I need, uh, you know, to 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 be on the spotlight. So my second agency was at the time the biggest and most awarded agency in Brazil, which was DDB Brazil. And I got there basically by uh, being extremely lucky, but also willing to give up everything I had. So when I left, you know, I was already, I had a salary. I was still living with my parents. So I was, you know, rich to some extent, you know, you have the <laughs> money to do everything you want in university. That's always good. So when I, I had to, you know, join this other agency, which I really wanted. I gave up my salary. I gave up uh, a, a position. So I went back to being a uh, temp uh, with a six months uh, expiry date, no salary, nothing. Uh, but in that agency, my career goal was to prove myself in the market. It was more than just doing what a copywriter does. Uh, and that's where, you know, working with probably the best people I've ever worked with in advertising, I I. I grew a lot as a professional uh, and from them there on, I could just, you know, take steps in the direction that I wanted. So, and the thing that I wanted was 
after this period of excitement and uh, and growth, I, uh, I I started to feel like my life wasn't going anywhere. And that's, I think, when, again, my career goals changed. I, I, I won the awards. I had, you know, I was in a great agency. I had been hired by, by them by the time. And then I decided uh, if I stay in this, you know, nine to midnight, seven days a week type of work, my life's going to be over soon. So at that point, I took a, a long vacation to, to, I wouldn't say to look for a job, but it was kind of like that. So I went to um, Australia, uh, New Zealand for a long time to think about it. And I, I was, you know, I, I had decided to stay there, but I didn't. So when I came back, I started thinking about my next move would be abroad. So I found a job in another agency, which was also big and started looking for a job. And um, I had this uh, place in Prague. So my criteria was it had to be a place I would need to learn a new language. Um, so Prague was the initial choice. But then the guy I was supposed to work with was fired. And then the president of the agency who was head of uh, Eastern Europe called me and said, look, we don't need you here in Prague, but we have a place in Kiev. Would you like to go to Kiev? I said, even better, I have no idea where Kiev is. And then uh, <laughs> I went, ended up in, in the Ukraine where we met. Um, and then my from there, my stage was like, how do I create or build an international career, you know, being in a place that no one does advertising? Right. So uh, and that was a big challenge because I was bringing the knowledge, not too much experience at the time. I was uh, in advertising for I think, seven years, maybe eight years. But I was so far ahead of the people I was working with um, that I I was able to teach them, but also change the way they were working, which was good for the, you know, the clients themselves, uh, you know, like Kiev Star, uh, Savutic and some other you know clients that we worked with. Uh, that were about to fire the agency actually became the number one in the market. They grew, they started trusting the agency. Um, and then from there, my, my new goal was to, to work at a bigger market because uh, Kiev was exciting, but it was quite small. My boss moved to Moscow. He invited me. So I moved to Moscow and that was my first uh, creative director's job. And from there, I just, I, I worked, what, six maybe years here in Moscow, you know, with the biggest advertisers, you know, Sberbank, Beeline, uh, MTS, and all these big brands here in Russia. But I noticed that I, I was born and raised to some extent in a time of TV, radio, and print. Mm -hmm. And the world had changed already. So internet was uh, extremely, like what we call digital, was extremely important. And no matter how much... I did or showed regarding digital clients would always say that I don't, I didn't have the credentials. So at that point I, I didn't know what to do. I quit my job and I was thinking like, maybe I should go study at Hyper Island. Maybe I should find a job at a, um, a digital agency. But during my, um, um, my time, uh, after I sent, I, I gave my resignation letter. So I was, uh, already set to leave in about a month. I got a call from Google uh, and then I, I, I said, okay, the, what, what could be better, right? So um, <laughs> through a friend's recommendation, I got this uh, job at Google and I've been there for eight years now. Uh, and I would say it's, uh, it's hard to leave, you know, because it's, it's always changing. So it's not like I've been doing the same thing for eight years. And Google, even though it's 
huge now, especially compared to the time when I joined the company. It's a much more uh, organized uh, place, not so so much of a startup anymore. It's still a place that changes nonstop. So, you know, these eight years I've been with Google feel like six months. You know, it's, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, so I get to choose what I want to do because Google only judges you based on the results you bring. So if I do what I want and it brings results, it's fine. Right. So it's uh, I, I do think your word sweet spot applies to, to my position now at Google. Well, it definitely sounds like quite the uh, journey and one in which you've had a hand in every step, but yet uh, had some luck, as you've mentioned along the way. You know, when I think of some of the work that you've done uh, for high profile uh, clients over the years, and when you mentioned Ukraine, you mentioned the uh, telecom company, Kievstar. One of the things that I uh, think about, because I experienced this ad campaign personally, was uh, with uh, uh, Kievstar during the run up to the 2006 World Cup. Can you tell us a bit about that, but also about what you've been doing for Google over the last few years, especially as you said, you've been able to really decide the projects you want to work on and have more of a direct uh, say in what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so uh, regarding Kievstar, I think Kievstar was a, was a key client in my life because uh, it defined my, my, uh, uh, my time in Kiev, which uh, built... I think the reputation for me to be able to move to Moscow uh, and work with Beeline and, and MTS and other, you know, um, big telco operators. Um, the situation with Kievstar when I the reason I was hired was to 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 try and hold Kievstar. Kievstar was about to fire the agency, um, and we had a, a French uh, strategy uh, person from uh, from Prague, who was Prague was the headquarters of uh, Euro SCG uh, in the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had Michel Touchot, which was the, the French strategist. We had um, uh, Jean-Manuel there, which was the creative director that was, they were bringing on weekends uh, to, to stay during the week f- with us. But I was the, the one person on the ground, let's say. And my first meetings with the clients were, were quite tough because the client was used to getting bad ideas and, and still being treated as if it was his fault at the time it was a herb uh, it was Svetlana um, but every time I went to them I went with ideas they said ah it's terrible we don't like it I'm like okay what don't you like the brief was this and it answers the brief so mm-hmm. like not like it's subjective but give me pointers so I can come back with more ideas so I was never rude I was never reactive mm-hmm. and you know uh, there is a saying in advertising that the deadline or the clock's running for both of you, the agency and the client. Mm-hmm. So at some point they have to approve something because they have to go on air. Yeah. Uh, and that means if you're always bringing things that you like and that you believe in, at some point you have to approve something that you like and believe in. And the thing about advertising is bad advertising works, unfortunately, but good <laughs> advertising works right. better. So most clients do bad advertising because they don't want to risk. They're just doing what has been done before because mm-hmm. they know it's going to work. So doing something different uh, involves risk, which is usually, to be honest, not a risk because it's going to work better or just as well as a bad advertising, but it's different. And you know, different means you're sticking your head out. So most clients don't do it. But with Kievstar, we did uh, a first campaign for uh, roaming 
with uh, Italians, which was a success. Then we did one uh, with uh, three minutes was a success. And then we did one that uh, was, um, uh, you get twice the, the, the time or a second, which we defined creatively as a, a, a second chance, which was a, a missed uh, New Year's countdown by the, by the grandfather of the family who was in the toilet and he comes back and then they count again. So at some point the client started to trust me uh, he was seeing that I had his interests in the in my mind uh, when, when I was working. I wasn't trying to, you know, uh, blame them for not approving ideas or anything. And then we developed a really, really, really good relationship. Um, and then at some point, because the advertising was perceived so well by the people, uh, Keystar finally uh, stood out as number one in the market. And then we created a, a campaign um, which was... Uh, uh, Kiev started the leader Ukraine trusts, uh, which took some uh, legal approval, which was not easy at the time as well. But in the in the end, it was really powerful. Uh, we did it overnight. Uh, we we literally created the ad overnight when they when the news came out, uh, and it, it was a constellation showing a face of a of a child. So it's like it's it started with, with one, and then two, and then three, and then friends and families and stuff. And it was like a zoom out from the sky, mm -hmm. and you saw this face at the end. And then we just built on that. And, and the, the ad you mentioned was also a great experience for me because uh, Kiefstar was one of the, um, uh, I don't know if they were the sponsors of, or they were trying to benefit from, from the fact that the, the World Cup was going to happen, uh, the Euro Cup was going to happen in, in um, Ukraine. Was it Euro? No, I think it was Cup? the World Cup in 2006. And I believe uh, Ukra yeah. um, Kiefstar was one of the uh, supporters of the national team. Yeah, so they had access to Shevchenko and some other players. Uh, but again, they were struggling to find a, a, a story to tell. And my story coming from Brazil was the story of every boy in Brazil, which is every boy dreams of being a player. And when you're young, when you're playing, you're always thinking that you are your heroes, right? So the whole story was you had these kids uh, in the metro around the city and, you know, there were dribbling people and stuff thinking that they were their heroes Romario right and after the like. they perform yeah so when they perform the trick they become the hero so like i said we had all this uh, big stars i mean i think the biggest one of course was uh, shevchenko um and it was great because you know meeting those persons seeing how nice they were how interested they were in you know shooting a, an interesting story we had a, a good director as well um and like uh, you probably remember, like we shot in, inside the metro. It's like not places that are not such uh, have such easy access to people. Absolutely, you know. And suddenly you have like a whole crew inside and and shooting. But the great thing is, uh, from that time on, like Kiev became, uh, a, 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 I would say, um, a center of production for people who want to shoot. So you have like Lisbon, Kiev. Uh, and some other places, which are now, you know, places that people go from here to shoot as well. Not just because mm -hmm. of the weather, but because of the quality of uh, of uh, production. Interesting. So that was the part, I think, in Ukraine. And what I do today at Google is kind of similar. You know, we're still um, generating ideas and making campaigns better for our clients. Mm -hmm. The only difference is that now I have this past experience of, of a creative, which means how to create a, a creative concept, how to use or transform an insight into an idea. But now I have to 
tell the stories using the technology of Google. So sometimes it might be a YouTube video. Sometimes it might be ways to combine the targeting of YouTube video with other technologies, but it could be artificial intelligence. It could be, you know, the APIs of Google. I mean, each case I have with uh, clients is different. So I have from like a virtual book for Mercedes to show how um, their formatic technology adapts to the situation, to artificial intelligence for chocolate in Lacta, to YouTube campaign. So very different, but again, it's, it's, it's similar because you're still taking a brief and coming up with a solution, but now the solution is how do I tell the story that the clients or the agency came up with using Google's technology, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's part curation, part creation. Um, and that's the reason I, I really like this job is, is, is that the canvas is, is big. At the same time, it's sort of limited. So you, you really become a professional uh, or an expert in those technologies, which helps you come up with even more creative ideas. You know, when I think about what you've started doing, which is TV and uh, radio and other things, and then in the digital space, your ad might be five seconds, it might be five minutes, especially when it's in video. And that, to me, is an interesting dimension uh, in terms of 360 uh, degree advertising when you're talking about reaching people, whether just because you know they're going to otherwise click away, but in that five seconds you get your message across, or if it's five minutes because you're telling more of a, a full story. Very interesting. I wanted to also ask you now, uh, Andreas, like, given what you've talked about and the kinds of commitments that these different projects uh, require of you, um, you know, you're yet still someone who manages to achieve uh, work-life balance. I mean, you're, you've are you been a fitness fanatic since you were 14. You even entered a bodybuilding contest when you were in Ukraine. Um, now you've got two small children. How do you manage uh, to achieve that balance and maintain it in an industry that has such heavy demands? And uh, has an enorm it takes an enormous commitment on your part uh, to be uh, part of that. Yeah, so I heard a, a sentence from Jack uh, Welch, I think two weeks ago, which I find true. Uh, it's, there is no such thing as like work-life balance, right? There are choices and you live with them and the choices are yours. So. In advertising, you might find people who arrive at 10 and leave at five because they want to stay with their family. Just as you might find people who get there at eight, leave at midnight and work the weekends because they want to be the best, they want to shine, they want to. So there is no formula for work-life balance. The, you have to you know, be okay at the end of the day, like feel that you've done what you wanted and accomplished the things you wanted. Don't expect the company to tell you how to have work-life balance, you know, and don't, uh, try to impose your criteria of work-life balance on others, especially if you're a manager, right? So that's the first thing I think it's clear. It needs to be clear for people that there is no such thing of like 50-50, 50 work, 50 uh, rest or anything like that. You do have to find the activities or the things that are important to you, but also the things that are important to maybe recharge your energies for work. Some people find work recharging as well. Like you have entrepreneurs and people who love to go to work. I, I actually love my work, but I understand that it's not the only thing in my life. Uh, but the key thing more than work-life balance is time management. And I think most people do a, a terrible job at time management uh, and waste a lot of time, um, especially on things that will not bring them any value. So 
when I hear people think like, oh, have you watched the Queen's Gambit or this or that series on Netflix? I say, no, I have no idea. Have you watched that movie? Have you read the news? I say, no, 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 and no, most of the time. Because those, thi- those things normally don't add any value to me, especially like news. Like news today is old tomorrow, right? So I don't spend any time on things uh, that don't bring me any value or, or, or that take away time from the things that I value. Uh, but also you have to, like I said, be very clear about the things you're going to do. So every night I have my to-do list and I write some even stupid stuff. Like I, I meditate every day. I go to the gym almost every day. Uh, I have work, of course. I read. Uh, I have hobbies. You know, I, I do all those, all of those things. And I, in the night, I say, before I go to bed, I say, okay, I'm going to bed now. I'm going to be, I'm going to wake up at, and then I know what time I'm going to wake up for the reason that I have to use the time I have. So if I'm going to the gym nice. in the morning, I say, okay, I'm going to wake up tomorrow at 6.30. I'll be in the gym at 7. I'll be there at 8 back. I'm, I'm having breakfast with my kids. I take my daughter to school at 9. I come back. I work. I take a break. I do this. So my whole day is scheduled around the things that I value and the things that bring me value as well. Emotional, um, psychological, financial, doesn't matter. But you have to be like, it, it's a conscious effort and it's hard work because it's so much easier to sit Absolutely. down and watch, you know, binge watch something or, you know, log onto Instagram and just scroll for half an hour. But, but the problem is like, there are two things. Time flies by, as you know, like you sometimes open Instagram and you look at it, it's like 20 minutes, 30 minutes flew by or, you know, Facebook or whatever, you know, social network of your preference. Uh, that if you don't make that effort, you know, it's, it's over. Right. And so time management above work-life balance and, and being clear about the things you, you, you value and, and want to achieve because, you know, without it, uh, you won't get any of it. I like that. That's a fresh take on things, especially especially in an age when so much time is being spent on social media as opposed to really, uh, as you said, finding things of value in your life. Um, I, I wanted to ask you now, touching on uh, your uh, background uh, from where and where you come from. Most people think of Brazil as being a pretty ethnically homogeneous uh, country, yet its people have incredibly diverse roots. I mean, indigenous, West African, Japanese, Portuguese, of course, uh, and you yourself have Italian and German roots. Uh, and as far as I understand, you still have uh, family in Frankfurt and Munich and your ancestral town in Germany, uh, from which you get your last name, Mielenhausen, has some pretty unique history. And as I found out, uh, they've even found Bronze Age uh, artifacts in the area. But anyway, to more to the point, what does your family heritage mean to you? Uh, and how does it help define who you are? Well, being Brazilian means being a mix of uh, ethnicities and, and, and cultural backgrounds. Like you said, the, the one thing that is it's funny about Brazil is Brazil is known for three things. It's carnival, football, and dark skin, right? And so... It's not just myself, right? But any, 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 anywhere you go, except you know, in the world, and you say you're Brazilian, people are like, oh, but you're, you know, you're not dark, you're not like, uh, you're so white, or you don't look Brazilian. And I would say, if you ever come down to Brazil, I bet no one would think you're a foreigner. It doesn't matter where you're from, because 
there is no such thing as the Brazilian face or, or the Brazilian look. Like I look at my friends, I have, you know, friends that look German, I have Japanese friends, I have black friends, I have uh, Korean friends, Jewish friends, Arabic friends, Lebanese, like all possible backgrounds are represented in Brazil. So as you mentioned uh, in, your, in your question, like Brazil is, is a country of immigrants. And unfortunately the original, you know, inhabitants of Brazil were killed or almost exterminated. So you have a few in, you know, Indians in the Amazon and some other regions, but there, I think less than a million, you know, in a country of 200 million. Uh, but all the rest, you have all the, you know, slaves from Africa when the Portuguese colonized the country, they brought slaves. So you started the mix. The North was colonized by Dutch. So you have, you know, the Dutch influence again, mixed with the slaves that came. Uh, and then you have the Italians that came just before and during the wars which took over Sao Paulo, my city, which is a very Italian city. You have the Germans, uh, Ukrainians and Russians in the South, mostly, you know, Germans, uh, Austrian, Polish as well. Mm -hmm. So like the whole country is, is a big mix. And it's normally like the biggest colony outside of the country of many nationalities. So <clears throat> Japan, I think uh, uh, Jewish, uh, uh, Arabic, uh, Lebanese, I think. So the, 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 a colony, the number of immigrants, you know, outside of their own countries in Brazil is is incredible. Uh, in in my case, I think, you know, if I'm thinking about like Italian and and German, so like I said, São Paulo, the city I was born, is very Italian. Like you have Italian food everywhere. You know, the way we speak, the words we use are are, are very Italian. But to me, the trait that defines me the most in that case is the thing about wanting to have people around you know mm -hmm. so uh, i don't know if you're uh, aware with it's uh, it's almost a stereotype but it's true you know that you know this you have this uh la mama she you know the mother she makes you know lunch for the whole family <laughs> and the family is not just the family is the family of the family of the family so every sunday we had dinner at my my grandma and it was like 15 people 20 people around the table kids running around my mom being from that environment is also like always inviting people to the house. Like our doors are always open. We're extremely um, um, loving people. And my daughter is like that as well. Like she hugs everyone. She loves everyone. We have this thing about, you know, touching, squeezing, kissing and stuff, which I think is, is the Italian side uh, that defines my personality. On the other hand, I have the German, uh, the other half is German. So my father is German. And what that gave me, and and I and, and I, uh, I admire uh, this these qualities in people as well, is order, uh, punctuality, uh, logic. Like it's almost the opposite, but those things complement each other. Mm -hmm. So you know, being a, being German, like if you look at my closet, you know, I have my clothes organized by color, folded, you know, to perfection. Like I know where everything in my you know in my house is. So if you ask me where my earphones or my underwear or whatever you want, I know exactly where it is, which is the opposite of my wife. Everything <laughs> she wants, she has to look for um, around the house, you know, being organized with time as well. So all of those things, I think, uh, came from this um, German background, seeing how my father's life was defined by work 
and and let's say structure, which was exactly the opposite of uh, what I saw in, in my family, uh, on my mom's side of the family, which was no, let's say, organization, no uh, rationality. I mean, of course, I'm exaggerating, but it was all like passion, love, you know, being close. Uh, like whoever needs help, like my, my grandfather was a person that could have been very rich, but he was always giving money away, giving businesses away because, you know, someone needs it, a friend needs it, a brother needs it. So it's like, oh, take this business. He, he was a very famous butcher in his neighborhood. He, you know, he gave the, the you know, the, his butcher shop to his brother when he was needing money. And then he had a business, you know, with selling cars and he was giving money. So it's like, for him, it was never about the future. And like my, my, my mom's brother never worked in his life. He was always, you know, living off of his uh, father's money because his father was like, no, don't worry, I'll help you. So that's one side. And my father, exactly the opposite side. Like, you know, like even in the house, like if I do, if I did something wrong, he would say like, look, you did this. If I was your boss, I would have fired you. You know, like he was always talking from this kind of structure, hierarchy. Um, uh, Business perspective. Point of view. Yeah, perspective. So he was always expecting uh, us almost to be uh, obedient more than loving, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the other side was uh, exactly the opposite. That's interesting. It's very much uh, similar to my family where the my father's side was very stern, Polish, by the books, and my mother's side being the Ukrainian side was much more artistic, free-flowing, you know, as you say, kind of almost disorganized, uh, but uh, still loving and very, uh, very much embracing. Um, on a totally different topic here, uh, a few years back, you had a small role in a Russian soap opera. Uh, what was the name of that show? Uh, who did you play? And uh, how did that whole idea come about? Yeah, so that story is, is, is the story of my life, right? So just as I mentioned that I wanted to work abroad, I found work abroad. I wanted to work in digital. I found I work at Google. At that specific moment, I was thinking that I wanted to try acting. So I started studying, you know, Stanislavski method. I started reading books. I started calling some producers in LA. I was ready to quit my job. I was working at Google for, I think, a year and a half or two years. But I, I had this idea. I was fixated that I had to, you know, drop everything and be an actor. So I was wondering, like, making plans on how to, you know, move to LA and start studying. And out of the blue, my phone rings and I pick up the phone. It's like, oh, hi, my name is Svetlana. I'm the casting director of TNT, TNT which is a big channel here. Uh, would you like to, to be part of a sitcom? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, what, what kind of role? It's like, oh, you're going to play the, you know, the boyfriend of the main actress uh, uh, for the season. Uh, you know, if you're available, you know, we could do a casting session, uh, like a, a pilot with you today. I was like, oh, okay, no problem. So I went there, shot the, the, this, you know, couple of scenes with the actress and they picked me for, for the role. So the sitcom is called Difchonki, which means like girls in a slangish way. Uh, and it's the Russian version of uh, Sex in the City. So it's uh, friends from all over Russia that move to Moscow to, you know, work. I think like Sex in the City, the friends are in New York, you know, to, to make a living. And I was playing Mr. Big. So uh, the girl had this guy uh, she loved. 
And I was this guy that comes, you know, uh, I would say full of panache and flair and, and ruins the whole thing, you know, for, <laughs> for the, the couple. Um, and uh, so I played for two seasons. Uh, it was it was great. It was a great experience. Uh, it was it was good for two reasons. It was good because it was fun, but it was also good because I, I understood that it's it's not what I wanted to do with my life for sure. It's uh, it acting looks easy and fun when you see you know the paparazzi and the films, but the actual work is super hard, man. I I, I really take my head off for these people because it's such a hard work. And not even talking about talent, just the fact that you have to shoot every day for like 12, 14 hours, put emotion, emotion in it, you know, remember texts and stuff. It's, it's, it's crazy, man. So uh, every time we shot the season, by the end of the, the, the shooting period, I was, I was completely wiped out. I was dead. Um, the thing I was able to, to, you know, manage with work as well. So I didn't lose my job or had to give it up for, for, the, for this opportunity, but it's it's uh, as a hobby it's fine as a profession i, I definitely think it's not for me <laughs> what was the name of your character in the show giuliano giuliano very funny yeah so uh, that's the thing i was playing uh so the the reason i was picked up uh not being an actor is they first wrote the series with this character that was a foreigner who moved to russia but spoke <laughs> russian so they wrote, they thought it was going to be easy to find one. And they were looking for a person for, I think, over six months, if I'm oh, not mistaken. And they, and they, yeah, and they had to start shooting at some point. And then they were desperate. They wrote on Facebook, like, if you know any foreigners who live in, you know, Moscow that speak Russian. And then a colleague from the agency I worked in Kiev knew this person on Facebook, sent a message saying, look, there is this guy that worked with me in Kiev and he's now in Moscow. So, and then gave my, my, my number, uh, but was like, again, in, in com complete, uh, and I, you know, I don't believe in luck, but I, that's probably the best word to use it. That's really fun. Um, that's all I've got for you today, uh, Andres. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. It's been a fascinating journey learning about your entry into the industry of advertising, but also your life journey and some of the things that you've done on the way. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Yeah, but thanks so much. It's uh, it's always great to reflect on the past, you know, uh, especially, you know, when you don't have a script and, and, and things start to, to come back, like memories, moments, uh, you know, you were a big part of those the, the story you know like the first place I, I lived outside of brazil was kiev so many of the things that were you know defined as my life abroad started there and you were part of it so i mean thanks for the invite thanks for for being part of my life and uh, the journey is only beginning man. so indeed it is good stuff We've been speaking with Andreas Toscano Mielenhausen, the head of creative agencies for Google in Russia, uh, near his home in Moscow. Uh, thank you for joining us on Expat Enclave today. If you wish to contact us, email me, Paul Miazga, at expatenclave at gmail.com. Thank you to our show sponsor, Sound Lounge by Timon. See you again next time. Like the show? Let us know. Rate and review the podcast wherever you found our show. Or email me, palmiesca at expatenclave at gmail.com.
Listen, it's what we're hoping for every day of our audience, our fans, our customers, that they listen to who we are, to what we are. But it only happens when your idea is delivered well in a way that makes them feel the message. Using every audio resource available today, Sound Lounge by T-Bone takes the intention and captures it, enhances it, and presents it to your audience with power and purpose. Whether you're shooting a movie, recording a song, crafting a brand, or simply putting a story down for the future, consider T-Bone. Dedicated to the craft of audio engineering, he will deliver the attention your project deserves. Sound Lounge by T-Bone.